welcome to this Zoominar on life and partnerships without the billable hour and how business models will transform post-COVID-19. This is brought to you by the Professional Practices Alliance. We are a multidisciplinary alliance of independent firms who specialise in advising the professional services sector. I'm Zilon Begum. I'm a partner at CM Murray LLP and I specialise in partnership and corporate law. I'm really pleased to introduce you this morning to our expert panel. Um, firstly, our guest speaker, Philip Goodstone. Phil is a partner and head of law for UK and Ireland at EY. Phil joined EY in 2014 as a founder partner of their legal practice and has grown the legal practice to a team of over 200 legal professionals in the UK. And then we have our three regular PPA speakers. Firstly, Corinne Staves. Corinne is a partner at Morris Turner Gardner and specialises in partnership and LLP law and SRA regulation. David Shovel-Botham is a partner remuneration specialist at PepUp Consulting. And last but not least, Robert Millard, who's of Cambridge Strategy Group and Rob specialised in law firm management consultancy. So in some professions, a billable hour which is the measuring of input hours to measure productivity and value delivered to clients is still fairly entrenched. The legal sector is probably the most prominent example of this. Whereas in other professions, for example, in architecture, business models have moved on where they now often charge clients based on projects or output delivered. These professions have changed their models for a variety of reasons, including the use of technology, AI, automation, and process mapping all of which have reduced, to some extent, the human element required to deliver services to clients. So if in the last year has, has taught us anything over the last few months, it, it's taught us that the world can change overnight. And as professionals in whichever se sector we might operate in, we all need to adapt at pace in order to adjust to the new normal. And in this seminar, we are going to explore what the world and business models for law firms and other professions might look like if indeed the billable hour became an irrelevance. So I wanted to start off the session by putting out a question to the audience um, in a poll, just to get an idea of what your firm does at the moment uh, and what the predominant pricing model firms are using in our audience. So the question is, what is the pricing model used by the firm? And the answers are quite broad. So firstly, whether it's hourly rate basis only. Secondly, primarily hourly <coughs> basis with some fixed price work. Or primarily fixed price basis with some hourly rate work. Or fixed price basis only. This will hopefully give us some idea of what firms participating in this Zoom are doing at the moment. While we wait for your answers to that question, I'm going to put out a very quick question to our panel to kick things off. So the question is, why do you think the billable hour has endured so long in some of the professions, for example, legal and tax? And I'll put that out first to Rob. Well, it's, it's, last, it, it's nearly 20 years since the American Bar Association published its, uh, its ABA Commission on the Billable Hours Report. That was in 2002. And, and that report contained, contained a whole litany of woes about the uh, legal profession's love-hate relationship with the billable hours. And it talked about bill padding and associates being unhappy and substance abuse and all sorts of stress. And here we are 20 years later and, and things have moved but they haven't uh, been disrupted they haven't been, uh, ch uh, ch changed radically 
and it's it's interesting to uh, to to ask oneself why uh, yeah, Buckminster Fuller, who was an architect in America at the beginning of the last century, uh, his greatest claim of fame to uh, was that he was expelled from Harvard University for excessive socializing that led him to uh, missing his mid-year uh, mid-year exams. But he went on to become one of America's most uh, foremost architects and systems theorists and authors and inventors. And he once said that you can never change things by fighting the existing reality. You can't change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, uh, you build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So I, I think that's what the problem is really, is that we haven't got this new model yet uh, that makes the billable hours obsolete and doesn't make, uh, makes the, the, the models predicated on the billable hour obsolete. Uh, the engineers and, and the, the architects have. But, but I think that we are beginning to see that now. Uh, we are beginning to see the same pressures as disrupted the architecture and the engineering professions uh, disrupting the, 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 the legal profession uh, in a positive way. Uh, so, so yes, we are, uh, if we look at the architecture uh, and, and the engineers, they don't have roomfuls of draft people anymore, but they're able to do work that is far more complex than they could before with just humans. Uh, and, and that, I suppose, is the promise for the legal profession and some of the other professions that haven't made the shift uh, away from the billable hour too, is to be able to deliver far more complex legal work, far more valuable legal work, hence be more, value, more valuable and profitable as firms, but the, the value being delivered by a mix of humans and increasingly complex digital tools rather than just by humans. Thanks, Rob. Um, I just wanted to get the view of the other panellists as well on this question. So, David, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, they sort of echo Rob's, really. Um, I, I, I take it down to, to another level of human nature because um, actually it's quite easy. And um, it's much harder, as we all know from having done it. And you've got to be much more planned and deliberate if you're going to um, to scope and price accurately you have to be far more planned and deliberate. You have to have an ongoing dialogue if you have scope creep. It's much easier to have your finance director just work it out for you and say, that's your chargeable hour and away you go. And the other thing, and, and maybe Philip will, will, will echo some of this, is that actually because you're charging for stuff that's intangible, it's often hard to make, it's often hard to charge for the value that you're creating. And also it's hard for your clients to go to their board and say, we're going to have a massive legal fee here, but look at the value they're creating because it's hard for them as well. So there's a number of things going on there that that are very much to do with human nature and and the fact that it, Bill Blower, actually for all its faults, is 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 quite easy. Phil, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I was. It, it, this question gets me to thinking back what was there before the um, before the charge Blower and the stories I was told um, as a trainee solicitor was that you know. The partner just used to pick up the file and see how heavy it was. My property seat, that was the that was the way to measure output. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just see how big the file was. But actually, you get to a similar result. I, I think there's, there's two things I would say is echo, echoing actually what Rob was saying earlier. I actually I actually think that um, change is difficult, but I think change in this case ultimately has to be driven by the customer. You know, ultimately, it's customers who drive change in markets. It's not markets who tend to drive changes in, in customers. And I think that there is, 
there's an awful lot of comfort in the, for the customer, even though they don't like it. They actually, there isn't something better there at the moment, and I think it is. I think it is understandable. Um, I, th I think on the on on the other side, and yeah, this is all. Yeah, I get asked this question a lot about why I left the legal profession to join the big four to carry on my legal career there. Um, the legal services market is fantastically healthy. If you want to see a story of success, if you look at GDP growth versus um, performance of the top 100 law firms over the last 20 years, top 100 law firms have done extraordinarily well. And actually, that's because demand for legal services is growing, law firms are growing, and actually, the billable hour suits the supplier as well. Because actually, the, uh, we'll, we'll come right at the very end to sort of the way the leverage model works. So I don't think there's currently an incentive to change being really driven by the customer. I'm talking generally here. But there isn't a huge incentive for the provider to change either. So it's, it's not until you get the stimulus for change either from the customer or from the supplier or um, if there's some really disruptive technology. And that's, you know, as you know, we all know Moore's Law. These things come much, much, much more quickly. They come, they come more quickly than people anticipate, and the effect is much more profound. So I think until we get the um, either you know customer-driven, supplier-driven, or actually a piece of technology that makes this all, you know, our businesses are gone, then I think uh, I don't think there'll be a, a huge drive for change. Thanks, Phil. Um, and coming to Corinne on on this question as well, what are your quick thoughts? Thanks, Zulon. I think I think I would echo um, what everybody else has said, but sort of turning Phil's comments on their head. It's, not, it's also about the partners because the partners in the vast majority of firms are the owners and the managers of the business. And as a partner, it's very easy, as David says, to say, right, eighteen hundred hours times by eighty percent um, busyness times by eighty percent recovery equals X. That's a lot easier than sitting down with a blank piece of paper and saying. These are the pieces of work that I'm hoping and going to win this work this year. This is what that's going to deliver. This is how I'm going to keep people busy. I, I wonder if there's an element of partners putting their heads in the sand. And I count myself firmly in that camp, by the way. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point. Thanks, Corinne. Um, so we'll very quickly look at the poll results for the first poll. Um, the answers are, so the predominant kind of answer was uh, primarily hourly rate basis with some fixed price work and the second the second on and that was with 71 percent and the second most popular answer was primarily fixed price with some hourly rate work so it looks like the hourly rate is for you know fairly prevalent among certainly among the audience here today um, so it'd be interesting to to hear what our audience's thoughts will be at the end when we have our last poll question as to whether business models will, will, will be changing over the next few years. So the central question of this webinar is, of course, what, what impact would it have on your firm's business model if it became impossible or, or irrelevant to measure billable hours? And so coming to Rob with, with the first question, do you want to explain why this issue is so relevant right now and why firms should be contemplating this scenario at all? Um, whether billable hour is becoming relevant. Obviously, we've talked about how it is still fairly entrenched in many professions, especially the legal, the legal sector. Why should firms even contemplate the possibility that the billable hour will be no longer a relevant feature of our business model? 
Yeah, thanks, Zulon. I mean, that's such an important question. And I, I'm sure there are many people on the call today that are, are, are thinking that as well, thinking, well, we'll just attend this webinar to see if it brings up anything new. But uh, really, clients aren't asking for a change, and we don't need a change. And, and, and we'll go back and maybe in five or 10 years time, this is something we'll have to uh, to think about, but but I really do believe it's going to come quicker than that. You know, it's in the the, the billable hour and 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 this this model, this 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 pyramid-shaped human leverage model, has been around for a century. In fact, it's it, it's it is a century since since 1920, when Reginald Heber Smith, who was then the uh, the managing partner of Hale and Daw in Boston, is now part of Wilmer Hale invented the timesheet and, and said all the lawyers at uh, Hale and Dorr should use it. And uh, they did very well out of it. So other people copied it and we got to where we are now. It's a century old, this model. Uh, it's a crusty relic of the early analog age. And if you look at the models that people put up on PowerPoint slides now, they're still pyramids, but they've got bits of technology and bits of outsourcing and alternative legal service providers. But nothing like what one sees in a merchant bank, for instance, or in an architecture firm or a big engineering firm, uh, where the pricing is different. Certainly, very little work gets charged than an hourly rate. There, it's a percentage of the fee of the uh, a percentage of the project cost or cost plus. Uh, there, there are various models that are not predicated on the billable hour. But I think the far bigger impact is going to be on the business model itself, because certainly the the, the business model of a typical law firm irrespective of how pricing is dealt with. The business model is still very heavily predicated on human efforts measured in increments of, of time. Uh, so how people are measured and, and how profitability is measured, profits per equity partner, uh, and, and how the whole, the whole system of the firm runs is predicated on people working, people with increasingly important tools and, and sophisticated tools. But the shift that we are likely to see now over the next, uh, the next year or two or three is th these tools beginning to deliver far more substantive value than makes sense to just sort of fit them into the human pyramid. We're already seeing signs of the shift. I mean, the, the ABA's tech report 2020 was released just a week or two ago. And one of the points that struck me in this report was uh, how AI-enabled tools are moving to the mid-tier firms, the smaller firms. And for the very first time uh, in their survey that, under, uh, that led to this report, sole practitioners were beginning, 7% of the sample uh, were sole practitioners saying that they're using AI-enabled um, tools. We don't have to talk about collaboration. I mean, since March, we've had this, this instant and radical transformation to, to, to dispersed work. And firms are now grappling with how you get remote collaboration working, not as a crisis measure anymore, but to get the best work out of people in a situation. And it's probably going to be a permanent feature of the operating model. So we, and we're seeing a whole ecosystem of practice management tools emerging around the Office 365 stack. And it would be absolutely amazing if in the next two or three years, we don't see the cloud becoming absolutely ubiquitous on the background and on the back of cybersecurity concerns and uh, just this, the, it, uh, driving the ease of working anywhere, not just from home. So we're going to move from an environment where, where the, the workspace is not just uh, the office and anywhere else, but ex by exception. But an ecosystem of spaces that includes the office, includes home, client premises, anywhere else, uh, and then the, 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 the digital fabric that knits all that together. And it's very difficult to make all that work when all you're measuring as an input is, is how hard people are working, 
which you can take to how much money they're making, which you can take even if, uh, to, to the next step, which is how much profit are they making. But you're still force-fitting it unless you take the substantive value that is being delivered by the technology into account in exactly the same way as engineers and architects take computer-aided design, CAD, uh, into account in their business models. Thank you, Rob. Lots of interesting points made there, and I and I think we've we've mentioned um, the kind of the, the impetuses of for change in in certain professions. So it can, the impetus can come from client demand or technological disruption, but there's also competitive impetuses as well. Uh, and there have been disruptors, for example, in in the legal market. We've seen alternative legal services providers, and obviously one of the major disruptors have been the big four moving in, into legal services in quite a big way. So it's great to have somebody from the big four on this panel to, to, talk, to talk to us about this and how the traditional law firm model actually fits into uh, the big four model, which from, from the outside certainly looks to be you leveraging technology much more in the delivery, delivery of its services. So I'm going to turn now to Phil to talk to us about how the legal services arm of EUI actually fits into the model of the big four uh, and how it actually differs from the traditional law firm model. Yeah. Okay. So there's. Um, I've now been at this for six years. You know, having moved from private, you know, from traditional private practice into the big four, I would say that um, my first observation is is that we lump the big four together in the way that we lump law firms together, but they're all quite different businesses and different business models. But if I take EY as as an example, I think I think the first thing I would say is is that it's a huge variety of different businesses. Um, I was approached by um, a journalist yesterday who said, just tell me what the bean counters do, will you? And I just thought, that there, there was something I just thought, crikey, that's such, an that's such a lazy assessment of actually all the different businesses that go to make up the big four. Because obviously big four has traditionally been and rightly been associated with audit. Um, but actually audit is, in our case, probably 25% of our, of our business. You know, we have a, you know, a transaction services business. We have a consulting business. And actually tax, consulting, assurance, we all price actually in different ways, but even within those businesses, there are different pricing models that, 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 that work. And actually, I would say that if you look at the, the audit model or anything with a compliance-like cycle, they've moved away from hourly rates years and years and years ago. I mean, they, they just, you cannot win an audit or a global compliance and reporting type project based on hourly rates. And I think that's the, yeah. And I think again, we'll get. We'll, I'll move on in a moment into into nature of services. I think even if you know I, law sits as part of tax within all of the big four, but even if you look at tax as a business, tax is a really broad church of a business. So you've got a basic compliance business versus you've got an international tax or a transaction tax. The way they price will be completely different. One will be by reference to fixed prices. Um, really where the client would never even hear about what the hourly rate is. Others actually will be a combination of a technology charge plus an hourly rate. And actually, as you move, as one moves up to the, the more complex, that's actually where the hourly rate fits in. And one of my, something I've been saying now for years long before I was in the big four is that if I think about the way my model has worked through the years, I've always felt I've overcharged for the, for the routine, but undercharged for the real value. And I think that that's the way that actually we're seeing different pricing models work is that if I can provide what I would say true value and insight to a client, I can actually charge an hourly rate there. That is much more, it's much more suitable. 
the client, yeah, there's less of it and the client can measure whether they're getting the value. But actually lots of what we do is it becomes automated or we can add technology. Uh, the hourly rate is becoming less relevant. So one of the things that I think is very different, I would say from a big four perspective, um, Gareth, you were talking earlier about almost the way we price jobs in terms of number of people, number of hours. Actually, within my own business, we always start with margin. We always start with margin, right? You know, so rather than just looking at the pricing, it's actually if the, if the client wants a job for a particular, done for a particular amount, one of the first questions is, can we do it for that amount and still deliver an acceptable margin? And I think, you know, kind of there's, there's a slightly a reverse psychology rather than starting from saying, well, it's going to cost you this. It's working with the client to find out what the budget is. And I would say this is a very much a big four thing is really work with clients on the budget. What are they prepared to pay? And then work out actually what can you deliver for that? And if there isn't a bargain there, it's actually perfectly acceptable not to do the work rather than actually, well, we'll agree a lower price. You know, we'll call it fixed, but it's not really fixed because when we're 70% of the way through the job, the scope turns out not to be the scope because actually, you know, I'm an M&A lawyer by background. It's really hard to get an accurate scope on an M&A job. And I think what's quite interesting is that one often starts with fee and then actually one relies then on hourly rates because you say, well, time on clock at the end is, is all very different. Big four is very different to that because we start with margin and we measure margin all the way through. And one of the things that was said to me before I joined was, was that people would find interesting was, Accountants always get their engagement letters out at the beginning of the engagement. Lawyers often get their engagement letters out at the end. We absolutely get our engagement letters out at the beginning of an engagement. And that is absolutely linked to all of our financial and our client onboarding systems. We're not allowed to start work until a whole number of things are in place. So there's, there is quite a lot of science that sits behind how we price and how we engage with, with, the, with the client. What it would be wrong to say is, is that our pricing models are not underpinned by cost of people. Um, I do think all professional services models are relatively straightforward. You know, we've got people costs, property costs, technology costs, insurance costs. The, the, the ingredients that go in there are, 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 not, are, not, are not so different. But I think that what scale gives us and what the breadth of practice gives us is actually the ability to look at some quite different models. And so even within my own legal services business, if I look at my own, you know, the biggest engagement I'm running at the moment is I'm running with a largely offshore team. So I'm running um, with 40 lawyers in, in Mumbai and delivering to a client in an area of work whereby actually it was really critical that we didn't just have the traditional hourly rate model on that. We've got a combination of both input pricing and output pricing. Actually, output pricing is really interesting because then I can say, if I know what my output pricing is, I actually know, particularly through long-term engagements, that then there are things I can do to improve the efficiency of what I do, and that then helps my margin. And I think that one of the one of the really interesting things about the hourly rate model is, is that um, if your staffing mix is wrong and that you need to make it more senior than more junior, you know, particularly with a client who won't push back too much on fees, that actually suits the firm because actually you're making more money rather than less. When you move to an output pricing model or you're moving on to a, say a long-term managed service actually there's a lot of onus on us as the supplier in order to improve our own efficiency in order then to actually um, manage our own margin and hopefully deliver more margin margin than we thought but all in the interest of you know kind of the way the longer term contracts work is we're always delivering increased efficiency to the client all the way through so it is win-win rather than win-lose or lose-lose as we as we see 
I think sometimes with the more traditional um, hour. So I was just going to add to that actually, Phil, that that if you if you align the clients and the firm and then the people all together with output as well, because we've seen during COVID that with so much working from home, frankly, if somebody wants to spend half their day surfing but still delivers the output I'm looking for, why, why would I care? Provided they're providing the output, why why do I ask them to slave away at their desk for X number of hours? even if it's inefficient. So if we align all three, to your points, then I'm not saying we should give our staff what they want just for the sake of it at the expense of the clients, but if we can align them, then great. Well, that's a, yeah, it's a brilliant point, because you know, I, I do think that you know, we're, it's, um, professional services is a business that we, um, we wonderfully overcomplicate, but it fundamentally, in, 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 back in 2003, 2004, when I started speaking about this, I used to say it's about people and it's about clients. Actually, I'd say now it's about people, it's about clients, about technology as well. But I do think, you know, kind of, if we get the people side of our proposition right, if we can actually encourage people and reward people for, for being really efficient, rather than actually gunning for um, a chargeable ad target, I'll give you a, a little bit of insight on that in a moment as to how that works in the big four. Um, that will make a massive difference. And I think it will give us longevity better people satisfaction the thing i was going to mention about that though was that when i set up the business back in 2014 i was absolutely committed to moving away from a model of um of linking my team's bonuses to chargeable hours what's been really interesting is that the real push from my team to get back something familiar which is if i do x number of chargeable hours will i qualify for the bonus and therefore you know having 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 actually said on the one hand, you know, kind of this is about, you know, client demand. There's also, I think we've got to take some, some of our people through a, a change journey as well. Because if you've been told for 10 years, if you do X hundred chargeable hours, then actually you qualify for a bonus. When one, when, when one begins to make that more of a qualitative assessment, and we will tend to do that through a lot of client feedback. But when we do a qualitative assessment rather than a quantitative assessment, actually that makes it, you know, it, it just gives people less certainty than they had before but I think actually you know kind of I'm hoping and again I did a piece on the law in this recently and I'm hoping that you know kind of what what lockdown will say is that actually presenteeism is hopefully something that will become a thing of the past over time and it won't be just about time spent at the hours so just to try and finish off this this piece how do I feel what have I, what have I learned from a big four environment I think there is absolutely a place for the chargeable hour and I think it's just about working out where it fits in I think that if we look at the uh, different approaches, I think on the, particularly on the lower complexity services, actually the chargeable hour is, is less relevant. Higher complexity, it's more relevant, but I think even on higher complex mandates, I think it's working out which parts of a higher complex mandate are truly highly complex and actually which part are routine. And I think we'll begin to see models, and we've really been seeing these in some ways through different models for the last 10 years, whereby different parts of large, large projects get broken down into bite-sized chunks. And I think different pricing models will, will, um, will apply to each. One of the things that actually was in, yeah, one of the things we discussed earlier, Zulon, yeah, when, we were, when we were prepping for this was what role technology will play. Genuinely, technology is having a significant impact. I think it's, an, I think it's threefold the impact. I think it's, how we design our own platforms for delivery, irrespective of whether you use the billable hour or not. What, what's the enterprise platform from which we're delivering as, as, as professional services providers? 
I think likewise, it's beginning to see what platform can you agree with your client in order to engage with your client, particularly general counsel's office, in terms of making their management of their legal supply chain better and more transparent. And I think the third thing that we're seeing is technology as a service. So where are we able to replace things that we did in the past, you know, by hourly rates or professional services? Where are we beginning to see technology as a service? And as I say, my background is as an M is as an MA lawyer, and we're seeing it a little bit less in that at the moment. But if you look at some of if you look at the Venn diagram of professional services, there's quite a lot of overlap between, say, what lawyers and non-lawyers do, particularly in the areas of compliance, particularly in the areas of data privacy. And I would say in those areas where I think the big four, not through my own practice, but through separate practice areas, are are driving is actually technology as a service to really help clients manage risk and understand risk across the whole of their enterprise so i do think technology will be um you know, technology will be a will play an increasing part on that going forward with certain areas of what we do clearly as i say charge wires has a place but think about people think about process think about technology most importantly think about clients as well thank you phil That's so many interesting points for us to kind of think over in, in that I think from from your answer and what all the other speakers have said so far, I, I don't think it, it, if any firm is looking at changing the way it, it charges or, or, or its business model, it's not a simple matter of, for example, buying a piece of technology and, you know, you rub it up and you get going. There are so many aspects and, and to think about. And actually, we, we've had a lot of comments in the chat box from our audience as well. And one commentator has said it's about looking at the whole ecosystem of the firm. Um, so it'd be good to kind of drill down into all of the various aspects that the firm would have to think about if it was looking at changing its business model. So if, if we assume that our hypothetical, for example, law firm was deciding to, to move away from, from the chargeable hour, not completely as we, I think we've all appreciated and uh, that there is a place for the chargeable hour, but if they wanted to use a, a more fixed price or output model, how would that affect various aspects of their firm? So uh, starting firstly with the way partner contribution is measured in law firms, how, how, how will that change, David, do you think, if, if law firms and other professions start to move away from the traditional pyramid model, um, charging by input time, chargeable hours? I think it's a really good question. I think the answer is, is actually very simple the way the partners will be evaluated on the basis of the time they spend on client matters won't change. But if you think about the billable hour, what you're actually talking about is an amalgam of two things. You're actually, it's an amalgam of input and output. So you've got to, you've got to draw a distinction between the two elements, I think, when you're looking at partner, partner evaluation and, and evaluation of contribution, because it still remains entirely valid to look at the amount of time they spend and where they spend it in terms of the value that they're driving for their clients. So that remains totally valid. But the output bit doesn't have to relate to the billable time at all. As Corinne said, you know, chargeable hours times rate times recoverability gives you an output. But you don't have, you can dissect it and you can say, well, the, the amount of time spent on client service is important. Can we improve that? Can we get the right people in front of the client at the right time? How much does it cost to have that person in front of them? To Phyllis' point, are we over uh, 
they're putting too much experience in on this uh, for the good of the, the client and the scope of the job and to preserve our margin. So it remains totally relevant, but you've got to look at those other bits of raw data as well. So you've got to look at what is the output, but it doesn't have to be guided by um, a billable hour rate. Remember that's something that, that you know, our uh, finance director friends who have done a great job on this, as Philip said, remarkably successful in doing this, but they put it together as an amalgam because it makes it you know, nice and easy and it's transparent and, and it's, it's easy to use. But is it the way forward? Um, not necessarily. But uh, is it also, I mean, uh, if it's not the way forward, does it mean the partners will be assessed differently? I don't think so, provided that you acknowledge that the billable hour is an, amalg is an amalgamated measure. And if you strip it out, it's still essential you know, cost of resource is a critical element of building services to client and working out what margin you're going to make. Thanks, David. So I, I guess connected with that question, and I think Phil touched on this earlier about um, starting with how much margin you could make on a piece of work. So, the, you know, the question about how do you firm the, the profitability of a piece of work, Rob, may, could you comment on that on that piece for us? Maybe, Phil, you can come in um, to give your perspective as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I support everything David's just said, but isn't it ironic that, and, and, uh, that, that people try to optimize the amount, number of hours that they spend on a project, increase the number of hours if they are uh, working on, a, on an input, if they're measured on, on, on inputs. Whereas we've got these Lean Six Sigma projects and we've got project management and we've got technology and we've got all these initiatives going on in the firms to try to drive down the amount of time it takes to deliver a piece of work product. Uh, so, so part of it is simply reflecting that. If one, doesn't, if one cannot measure by the hour, if we cannot bill by the hour, which is part of the premise of, of today's webinar, then what other options are there? Well, part one might be to, to take a, a, a percentage of the fee, merchant bankers do, but, but of course, merchant bankers, investment bankers also work on a risk basis. And I don't think clients would like to have their legal advice uh, tempered by why, if, if we didn't want to go ahead with this deal or shouldn't go ahead with this deal, would, would our lawyer tell us if they were only going to get paid if the deal went ahead? So there, there are ethical considerations there. there also, there's also a, a measuring what it would cost to deliver the piece of work and disclosing that to a client, very common in engineering and architecture, and, and then defining the profit on top of that. Uh, I, I think that the, the key, though, is that discussions need to take place with clients about these topics, because so often the client themselves uh, do, doesn't understand what the alternatives are. They look risky, so people default to buy the hour. And increasingly, I think that means that, uh, as Philip said, with the, with the routine work, one tends to underbill overbill rather, and the exceptional work you tend to underbill. And the overbilled uh, routine work is being taken more and more by the alternative legal service providers. So we're left with the premium work where people are underbilling. So there's money being left on the table. I think Zulon, one other thing I, I would, um, again, context of these discussions is always important. I think one of the things I've always loved about our profession yeah, for those lawyers here, is the absolute dedication of teams to get things done. Mm. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, kind of the billable hour, you know, is unhelpful from a client's perspective. But I do know what it's like, you know, when, um, and I see this 
right across, you know, and I say my background in M&A, which is we absolutely do everything we can, whatever it takes to get the thing done for the client. And the problem with that, of course, is that people forget to look at the engagement letter. They don't look at scope. They don't understand the curve as to how time is recorded towards the end of a matter, which means that you can tell you're, you, you can actually say to a client you're on budget at kind of when you're 80, when you think you're 80% of the way through on a time basis. But all of a sudden, you know, the, it is a hockey stick curve at the end of a particular a, a transaction. And the teams are so dedicated and committed to getting things done that actually then they get kicked on the other side because the chargeable hours on the clock are so high. So I think there is something whereby what I would hate to lose, and it's something we, we're, we're managing through our, through our own business at the moment, I would hate people not to keep putting the client first because we've moved to a pricing model whereby actually they think it's all about margin, as I said earlier. That's absolutely not what we do. It's more about measuring how is there something we can do for a client in a particular way. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of, you know, I think just how exceptional the legal profession is in terms of its dedication and commitment to clients. I would completely echo that, Phil. Uh, there are those ethical considerations to kind of factor in. And also not only doing the job, but doing it really well and um, advising the clients of all the risks and opportunities and all, all of the things that go. And that takes time. And it's not always possible to scope that out at the beginning of any matter because things change uh, as you go through any transaction. And it's difficult to manage that, you know, what, what, what advice the client might need as you go along. So it's, yeah, I, I think as all, all lawyers on this call will, will appreciate that conundrum, I think. So, so going on, uh, it, you know, looking further into this kind of hypothetical change in business model for, for our law firm, Corinne, what are the things that the firm, what are the things the firm will need to think about in terms of its governance and constitutional model when it comes to changing uh, its model from um, a predominantly hourly rate billable model? Thanks, Zulon. I mean, there will need to be changes, I think, to accommodate a new way of working. For example, if technology is used to support the services that a, the professional services firm is offering, then you're not going to be charging by the hour because the computer might do something in seconds and you're going to want to charge a, a reasonable amount for that. So you are going to need to change, but you're probably going to need to invest quite a lot in order to get that technology or, what, or, or to transform the model. And then you're going to get that friction that we, we already see within professional services firms, but I don't think we've seen the full extent of it yet, where, as a rule, uh, professional services firms um, share all the income every year. So if you want to make sort of a big capital investment, that's going to depress the current year's profits or the profits over the over the sort of the short term. Um, but the idea being that's for long term gain. Now, how do you balance in that circumstance the interests of those partners who are nearing retirement, say, who might be a few years out from retiring from the firm, they're not going to be that interested in capital investment that's going to reap rewards in, say, 10, 15 years time. By contrast, those people who expect to be at the firm for the next 30 years, they're going to be more inclined, I would have thought, to um, to vote in favour of that investment. And actually voting is key here because in some firms, and, and I do think it's less prevalent now, you do still see that the most senior partners have the most significant voting percentages and or, you know, sometimes where you have the sort of the junior equity and the senior equity, sometimes they're the only ones that have rights to share in capital profits or, or have sort of serious votes. And as I say, that's quite a traditional approach that lots of firms have moved away from. But in those circumstances, you, 
you would think that you wouldn't get that cohort of the most senior uh, people who derive the most benefit from those kind of substantial income profits saying, yes, let's plow lots of money into the business to do that. Now, I'm generalizing wildly because we've all seen examples where the opposite has happened and people have been very um, enlightened and seen that the, their job as in our planning call, we talked about sort of custodians of the firm for the next generation. But I think that that sort of enlightened viewpoint is probably a minority view. <laughs> um, and, and then just thinking about it from a constitution, constitutional perspective, if you're going to make these changes down to the nitty gritty, I mean, as a lawyer, the things I would be saying is how do you change that? How do you vote in favour it? Not just how do you implement it, but how do you even get it across the start line? And that can be really challenging. Some firms still have unanimity. So th those sorts of um, governance and constitutional challenges shouldn't be, shouldn't be over, um, sorry, shouldn't be underestimated. Thanks, Corinne. Um, so kind of connected to that and also the, the, the kind of partner contribution um, point that we discussed earlier is, is how do you, uh, in your constitutional document, again, change your remuneration model to, to adapt to the new kind of um, business model that you're, that you're changing towards? Um, and again, does that need to... Uh, incorporate uh, some type of capital event possibility if, if the firm is making a lot of investment into if the partners of the firm are having to make a lot of investment into changing the business model and um, uh, incorporating technology etc I'll, I'll go to David first and then I'll come back to Corin again uh, thanks Rula. I think there are two aspects to this uh, that I'd like to pick up on we see and in my practice we see an awful lot of firms now trying to define more closely what contribution is and what performance is and you're seeing that from both ends of the, of the spectrum actually from um, what you might regard as more traditional eat what you kill type businesses realizing that relying entirely on origination credit as their key metric and realizing that that doesn't foster collaboration within their business and they're, and they're wanting to change the definition therefore of what contribution or performance is so they're trying to draw down into this more collaborative sort of idea of performance. Whilst those firms that have been more traditionally, um, and there is a geographical element to this as well, which you we could go into another time, but those firms that have been traditionally more based on a tenure basis or lockstep style or communal reward basis, they're trying to um, look at the, the, the differential contribution the partners are making and start to make differences in, uh, in terms of reward allocation and profit allocation. So it's happening from both ends. This is, if you move more um, fully towards abandoning the billable hour, then you will see a greater um, shift in that performance definition. In the systems that I work within and design, actually there's a lot of emphasis now when uh, we put together a sort of contribution framework around direct line service. There's a lot of emphasis about how well pricing is scoped projects are delivered. So actually a lot of what we're talking about is coming into place, but it is, again, you have to be more planned and deliberate about doing it. It's tougher. But again, I always say to my clients, look, you don't get competitive advantage from doing the easy stuff. Everybody's doing it or you're just catching up. So this is a route to actually differentiating what you do and preserving or improving your margin even. So that's the first thing. The second thing on capital events, Corin is, is probably better placed uh, than me to answer this in, in full, but 
the partnership model as it exists, which is a perpetual sweat for equity model, which is, means you've got to be perpetually sweating and contributing in order to take out um, profit, your equity profits, that does not sit well with creating capital events and, and, and distributing the, the proceeds. Um, infamous example would be Halliwell's on this. Um, but some of some firms that are starting to develop ways of doing this, if you look at some of the offshore firms who have financial services business, they're used to building up and selling off, then doing the whole same thing again. They're starting to get a bit better at this, I think. But from my conversations with those guys as well, they say, God, that was a, that, we were trying to, you know, force a square peg into a round hole doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those are the two aspects I'd, I'd pick up on uh, performance, I, you know, a definition and capital events to a partnership model. Not easy. Yeah, no. Uh, and I think even some of the law firms over here have tried, tried to kind of uh, hive off their innovation arms, for example, into separate entities. And I assume that's to structure any potential capital event that might come along down the line. And I think lawyers and demand was probably a prominent example of that. Corinne, uh, do, uh, very quickly, your thoughts on this uh, and um, uh, how, how, do, how do firms deal with capital event possibilities? I know you touched on it before. Probably badly is the answer, Ceylon, because you know, what we've just discussed in terms of even if you set it up as a, as a separate business, say underneath, um, there's going to be a crunch point at which it is sold and there is going to be a category of winners who are either those who are entitled to share in that profit, that capital profit, or have a larger stake in it. And, and you know, we've seen it with some, some of the listed firms as, as, as well in a, in a different world. Um, and so I think that firms need to tackle that head on and to, to try and do it more in a more sophisticated way. But I think there's real scope here to make it into a really positive step because just imagine you do transform the business and the way that you're delivering um, services, your model. You've got people who say, right, we're on board. We are prepared to take a hit financially for these years in order to profit in the future. Everybody is driving in the same direction with a common goal. They're not competing with each other for this piece of work or that piece of work so they get a tiny bit more bonus. You're all driving in the same direction with the same goal. You're incentivized to stay. You don't need lockstep to make you stay, although you might have a system like that. Your, your loyalty to, is to the firm and what you're building, because if you leave now, whatever investment you've put into the firm, you're walking away from. So, you know, obviously performance and contribution are vital because everybody's got to be perceived to be putting enough in and doesn't have to be ours, but their contribution has to be perceived to be equal. Everybody's got to be sweating at the same rate. Um, but, but you know, you could get this great loyalty and this great kind of collegiality where you're all driving towards the same goal. And if you can get the model right, focus on the margin, then you can just sort of then, you know, pro literally profit from it. And then maybe it won't be so bad when there's that kind of unfairness when people leave. Um, however, I would add that in the past with firms, we used to see annuity arrangements because there was this sense that you know you, you contributed to the goodwill you didn't want to walk away from it and we've moved to a model now with most firms where there are no annuities um, for, for obvious reasons because they were crippling firms making mergers very challenging and those sorts of things LLP conversions were, were very challenging but we're starting to see a new breed of firm being launched where the founders are saying no we need to recognize right from day one the goodwill here and, and that's not a, a feature of professional services firms as a rule we need to recognize the goodwill and I want my founder shares or whatever it is usually called and obviously that's a bit more challenging in LLP context but this idea that you can profit from the business even after you've stopped being actively involved it looks a lot like an annuity but it's like keeping shares as a passive shareholder and so we're starting to see this concept of 
taking a, a stake in the goodwill over the longer term. And so I do wonder whether we're going to see more of those models. And I mean, they're not free from problems, obviously. What if you go and work at a different law firm? <laughs> That's going to be really challenging. But but it just goes to show that people are recognising the value in that goodwill and sort of driving um, towards building it within their firms. Zoom on. Just one point I would add, uh, and maybe this is just from a big four, a big four perspective, but I think scale really helps with your ability to invest. If you look at the you know, the traditional accounting market versus the law firm market. The law firm market is still incredibly fragmented. Yeah, there's a lot of really good successful firms, but actually because of the partnership model, it's not until you get huge scale that actually can you make the amount of investment that's gonna make a meaningful difference over the long term without having a noticeable dilution on partner profits year on year. So I do wonder whether we will, in a, uh, obviously got no insight on this at all, but I do wonder whether we'll see some consolidation uh, that will enable more of that investment. Yeah, absolutely agree, Phil. And I think that's probably why certainly a lot of um, the middle market law firms in, 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 in the UK see the big four as a big challenge to them because of the scale that they can't they can't afford to invest in the technology on the same same kind of scale that the big four can can do at the moment. So um, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that. So moving on to, to our final question to the panel before we move on to our audience questions and, and final poll. Um, in terms of how the model changes, so if your business model is going to change or evolve from simply selling the expertise of your people leveraged by the traditional pyramid model, and you change into selling selling your expertise leveraged by technology, automation, efficient processes, and some human input. What does that, how does that, how does that impact on the way you retain your talent and uh, your talent progression, as well as diversity and inclusion? Because I think those are very important things to think about when you're, when you're thinking about changing business models and how that affects the people. Because it, it, regardless of how much technology might you might use, um, the business of law and certainly other professions are still, still about people businesses. We might still, you know, we might think of ourselves as partly being technology businesses, but it's still underpinned by, by the human element. So it's important to think about how the impact, uh, what the impact will be on the workforce. So I'm gonna to go to Phil on that one first, um, because obviously you're at the kind of the, the, the coal face of, uh, different business model and how how, how does the, your workforce, for example, ch um, differ from the traditional law firms you've been at previously? So uh, definitely a kind of a, a different sort of leverage model, particularly using um, you know offshore, nearshore resource. Although I know a number of, of, of UK firms have that as well. I, I actually feel really positive about this in that I um, uh, 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 just a sort of. Slight diversion, but we've been talking to a lot of in-house counsel about their experience through lockdown at the moment. And one of the overarching themes we've had is, is people saying, actually, it's been the most interesting time of my career. And it's, it's actually reminded me why I came into the profession in the first place. And I think that, you know, kind of one of the things that, you know, kind of people see technology as a threat. They see people like Big Four as a threat, I think, wrongly, because I think We've got a really buoyant market where we're just one, we're just one participant. That, that, that's all. But but the big thing for me from a talent perspective is that actually I really hope that you know these highly qualified, highly intelligent people can spend more time doing tasks that really are about using their brain power, their people skills, so that combination of IQ and EQ 
rather than actually being stuck to the desk doing stuff which bluntly can be automated or can be done with better process, et cetera. So I think for our talent proposition, where we're trying to get to, and it's actually one of my key priorities for this year, is I look a lot at our engagement index score. So how can we improve the experience of our people? How can we get them doing things that really stimulate them and interest them and actually help them to become better lawyers more quickly rather than actually doing too many administrative tasks or things that could be done in a better in a better in a different way. So I, I'll, the first part first part is, is is I think very positive. I think I think the other thing, and I would say this is again this is linked, but it's also linked to the current crisis. Is is that I do think that it will have a very positive impact from a diversity and inclusion perspective, because I think that actually as people get to view more around the quality of what one is done rather than simply quantity. I think that that will begin to shift culture, which will particularly help, I, I think, from a gender diversity point of view. And that's a, sorry, in two minutes, I cannot give that subject justice, but there's a, there's a lot, there's quite a lot that sits behind that. But certainly I, I see it as a, as a potentially really positive thing from a talent perspective. Thanks, Phil. We, we should definitely get you back on when we talk more about this issue in particular. David, what are, what are your thoughts from a kind of former law firm HR perspective? I think the big I think the big change we'll see Zulon is that people will just get better at identifying the right business models and talent retention bases for different types of businesses. So if you've got a very high end uh, legal business which is doing a lot of tailoring of of product to client need, um, can charge at a, at a high level. Using an uh, amalgamating within that the technology that is available, which obviously firms do already. And to Philip's point, you know, he probably started when I did, when he'd spend a lot of time proofreading. You know, nobody really proofreads anymore because you've got the technology to do it. So that big burden of boring jobs has moved on as a good example. But I just think people will get better at identifying what they need to, to uh, do in terms of business model to foster that talent retention and, and progression. The, you know, no getting away from it. The partnership model in that context is fantastic at doing what it does. It is brilliant at bringing along pipelines of people who are well motivated to deliver high quality legal advice. And, and I think as, as Philip has just indicated, you know, there's room for a number of different models because there's room for a number of different types of service. We're not talking about an homogenized service that, that we're offering. So uh, the answer is it'll be diverse It'll continue to be diverse. The better firms uh, and better businesses will identify the model that best suits what they're delivering. Thanks, David. Um, so I want to turn to some of the um, comments and questions from our audience in the chat chat box. And we have one which talks about what do you think uh, senior GCs, do you think that whilst most junior, junior senior GCs come from private practice and are used to the hourly rate, it will survive until the GC community come from a new generation of lawyers. So um, I'm assuming that GCs uh, may be coming from other in-house environments rather than private practice or alternative legal service, service providers or even maybe the big four. Do you think that's going to have an impact on, on the way they want their the firms on their panel, for example, to, to be charging them? I'll, I'll throw that to Rob. So yesterday I, I attended the clock conference, so not the whole thing, it finished at 3am this morning London time, but um, 
one of the things that, uh, that, that struck me was the way that a lot of the people, in, on, on, especially in the breakout groups, were talking about their law firms. And it was, well, in, the, in this case, why would we lose a law firm? We'd use an ALSP. And uh, uh, in, in that case, why would we use a law firm? And it, it, it was almost dismissive of law firms, which I, I found a little upsetting, actually. Uh, and, but one of the earliest sessions of the, of, of the conference had David Wilkins saying one of the big problems, one of the pieces of the puzzle that's missing is that we don't have a set of agreed value measures uh, of metrics to assess legal services. And legal services are by no means monolithic across the spectrum. It's perhaps easier, as Philip said, we're with um, outsourced, uh, not outsourced, but operationalized services, legal operations. But in a, how do you measure uh, success in, 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 a, in a big M&A deal? And I think these are conversations that need to take place with between the law firms and their clients on a way that in, in conversations that don't take place yet. GCs may have come from law firms, but they're paid very differently in, 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 uh, in the in-house teams. They get options. Uh, those options can be underwater if there's a profit warning. They, they, they are driven by their boards of directors. And I think, uh, and, and listening to the conversations at clock yesterday, just reinforced, uh, there's a hunger for these kinds of conversations about what, what, value, what, what value means and, and how client experience can be enhanced because if you've got similar firms delivering similar services at similar prices, then why wouldn't you charge, uh, choose the firm with whom it's easiest to work? So um, I, I guess that's my response, Zulon. Let, let, let's talk about what we can do now uh, to fix this rather than whether it's something that's going to require a generation change. Thanks, Rob. We've just had a new question. So whether fees will drop if firms move to fully work from home working style? Um, as that will reduce their property cost. Um, will that cost saving be passed on to clients? And of course, we already have some law firm um, platform models, which, which are virtual law firms. But what if we, if we all become virtual law firms now, <laughs> um, given the current environment? Do we pass on our property, you know, the, the, the reduced property costs on to client? Uh, and even reduce, reduce employment costs if we're employing people in other parts of the country which are perhaps um, cheaper to employ. Phil, what, what do you think about that? It's a lovely, it's a lovely easy question, isn't it? Uh, crikey. I think that, um, I think those are, I think it's a really relevant, I think it's a really relevant question right now. I, I honestly don't see most firms reducing their property costs significantly. I think the way they use the property will be different, but over the next 10 years, I don't see a significant shift, but I think if there, if there were a shift, then I think, yeah, those will, they'll have to be uh, passed on. I think the staffing question is really interesting, you know, kind of, and I think that's a really interesting one for, for both the employee and, and, and the employer. I think that what I find, you know, and it just leaps back slightly to the previous question as well. I think, I think though that what will really drive change is if you look at what's happened in other functions of the corporate world, the HR function, the finance function, increasingly the tax function, just be in, be in no doubt whatsoever that the chief financial officer and the chief exec are absolutely looking at the cost of general counsel's office as well. And ultimately, it's not just the cost of the general counsel office, but it's the cost of the uh, legal supply chain, which is a combination of what's done in-house, what's done by your traditional firms, what's done by your alternative providers. And that's the thing that I think will, you know, 
ultimately going back almost to, to where I started in this, this being driven by the customer, the pressure on the general counsel to deliver more for less. You know, I, I'm sorry to use hackneyed in, um, phrases, but the, the, you know, the old one about you know, never waste a good recession. The general counsel's office has been relatively lightly touched up until now. And that is changing. I don't know what Rob you heard at clock through the growth of um, you know kind of legal ops professionals and so on, but I don't go a day without talking to a general counsel who tells me that there isn't pressure to do more for less and demonstrably more for less. And I just don't see that changing. So apologies. I know I've answered this slightly differently. Well, I wasn't trying to be political, but I think that will be the bigger driver for change rather than actually the yeah. property costs are where people are located. Thanks, Phil. Um, and we're going to go to our final poll question to the audience, just to kind of gauge in, uh, an impression of what they think, perhaps having ha listened to our pod, um, session, as to how likely you think your firm's pricing and business model will change over the medium and long term. So the answers are very likely, somewhat likely, somewhat unlikely, or very unlikely. Um, while we wait for that poll question to close, um, I'm going to um, go to the panel for their final thoughts on this session. Uh, if, if you were to look into your crystal ball and predict a one way in which business models in the professional services sector might change over the next five years, what do you think that might be? And I'm throwing out for 10, 10 second answers, if possible, please. Um, Corinne, what do you think? <laughs> Certainty. We need to find a way to give certainty. Uh, GCs want certainty. Private clients want certainty. Everybody likes certainty. So let's show people what value we add, provide certainty about cost and who cares what it costs. The client won't care what it costs us to get there. They're just going to get what they wanted for the price they were expecting. And if we can achieve that, then we're really, we're really nailing it. David. Two things. Distributed workforce is going to have some huge implications positive and negative second one is that um, uh, performance measurement is going to be much more data driven so firms are a bit lazy about that at the moment in general data that supports performance evaluation will become much more uh, on point thanks david uh, uh, and rob so from Ernest Hemingway's book, uh, Death in the Afternoon, how did you go bankrupt slowly and then very quickly? Uh, we, all the technologies that could, try, that could disrupt legal practice are out there and other partnerships too. They're out there already in plain sight. Uh, and they, they are going to become accepted very, very quickly. This is not something that's going to happen 10 years from now. We're looking two to three years. Uh, and finally, Phil, what are your thoughts on this? I, I, think, I think the fundamental change will be the shape of the pyramid in that there will still be a pyramid, but at the bottom, you know, kind of in the outer edges of the bottom, it will be a lot less people and a lot more technology. And I think, you know, the pyramid from a people perspective will not quite be a reverse pyramid, but um, not far off a reverse pyramid. I think that creates some really interesting challenges as to actually how we ensure we get our future talent pipeline and how we ensure that it's a diverse mix of people, because actually less people come into the profession, I don't think will necessarily help from a diversity perspective so uh, I think there'll be some really I think that's a really interesting for a challenge for a business to get its mind around what does your new what does what's the new pyramid and what does that mean to you? thank you Phil so it's been a really interesting session we have the results of our poll the predominant answer seems to be very likely which is at 27 um, percent and somewhat likely 43 percent so 
the majority of respondents um, seem to think that business models and pricing will change over the next five years. So that's that's quite an interesting output. Uh, and I think our panel will probably concur on that. So thank you. So that just leaves me to kind of thank our panel and our audience for participating. It's been a really interesting session. Um, we will be sending out the pod podcast for, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So please, please watch out for that. Um, and there will be another follow-up session um, by the PPA uh, in, in the next couple of weeks um, on how firms are dealing with challenging issues that they, they maybe would have um, brushed under the carpet over the last few years, how COVID has actually forced them to change. So please also watch out for the invitation for that session in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and that just leaves me to thank, thank the panelists again and the audience for participating. Um, it's been very good to kind of see you all on screen and to say goodbye. <laughs>